Womanjeka and welcome to M Pavilion. We acknowledge the Bunurong people who are the traditional owners of the land in which we stand and acknowledge any elders past, present and to the future. Thank you for joining us here tonight. We're lucky enough to be joined by Natalie Jeremijenko who has come all the way from New York, uh, but she did begin here. She is uh, Brisbane born, am I right? Mackay actually. Mackay. Um, I never admit that. But <laughs> got it out of you. Um, Natalie is most definitely one of the most educated people I've ever met. Um, she is the Associate Professor in Art, also the Affiliated Faculty in Computer Science, Environmental Studies at the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education and Human Development. And she's joined tonight by Marie Greenfeld, who is the coordinator of Melbourne, the Melbourne Resilient Project. We got it wrong. Resilient Melbourne. Resilient Melbourne. Uh, which is um, uh, part of the city of Melbourne that is preparing for Melbourne to be a resilient city um, out of 100 in the world. I'm going to leave it up to these two to get talking. I think first we're going to hear from Natalie, um, who's going to tell us about her work, um, and then there'll be a discussion. And am I right in saying if at any time anyone has a question, you can put up your hand and we'll come and give you the mic? Yeah. Yes. All right. Beautiful. Thank you very much. You too. Yeah, so what I think I'll do is, uh, I, I think of Melbourne as home, um, and now that we've got a nice intimate group, um, I'd really like to go through a, a series of concrete projects and the strategies that I've been using in the last, these are recent projects, the last three, four, five years, um, to address the, um, the great challenge that we all face. I think you, um, can you hear me okay? Yeah? Um, welcome to the Anthropocene. Um, Will Stephan is one of the um, lead scientists and Australian uh, climatologist who has helped co to coin this, world, this word, the Anthropocene, that, we, um, that describes the geological era where people dominate the biogeochemical processes of the world. And it poses a very interesting um, cultural phenomenon. In fact, the um, International Union of Geologists are still debating whether or not we're in the Anthropocene. Um, I think it's unambiguous for those of us involved in the cultural challenge of addressing the, the real challenge that we face, which is redesigning our relationship to natural systems. I'd call it actually the space race of the 21st century is redesigning our relationship to natural systems. And that's a very different approach to the kind of sustainability discourse. So I'll go through what I've been doing and how I've set up my practice. Um, I'll come back to the and end with the Museum of Natural Futures, but introduce you to uh, how I do my work, which is uh, framed in terms of a health clinic or a surgery as in Australian, um, uh, a university-based health clinic called the Environmental Health Clinic, which um, twists the definition of health from one that is um, internal, atomized, individualized, pharmaceuticalized, medicalized, to one that's in the air quality we're all sharing, in the food systems we all depend on, in the shared water quality, uh, and shared environmental commons, right? This idea of health 
that is external and shared is now the, the best determinant of your, well, a better predictor of your lifespan than your um, genes is how close you live to a major arterial road. Right? The pediatricians in New York City um, actually spend about 90% of their time uh, treating five top issues. Does anybody guess what they are? Asthma is number one. Number two is um, developmental delays, developmental issues. Number three is um, rare childhood cancers. Number four and five are diabetes, which I like to put together, <laughs> juvenile diabetes and obesity issues. And none of those are the germ theory of health, right? All of them, the environment is implicated. So this idea that we can treat environmental issues as health issues and health issues as environmental issues has uh, a number of virtues. One is that, of course, you can change the globalized discourse of global biodiversity loss or global climate change, which by definition you can do nothing about, to something you can do something about. So people who come to the environmental health clinic um, come with their environmental health concerns as opposed to their medical health concerns and they walk out with prescriptions for things they can do to actually improve their local environmental health and I'll show you a range of those um, rather than pharmaceuticals, right? And the interesting benefit of working in this way is that anything you do to improve your air quality or your food systems or your local environmental health, the benefits are enjoyed by anyone you share that environment with. So people who come to the clinic are called um, impatients rather than patients because they're too impatient to wait for legislative change or other um, government bodies um, to address our um, shared environmental issues. Uh, I have field offices in all sorts of interesting places which I'll also show you a couple of examples of. Um, but this idea of, re of changing how do we intervene with these, um, with what I call actually um, the crisis of agency. And the crisis of agency is quite simply that question, what do I do? In the face of so many environmental, political challenges, what do I do? Institutionally, individually, collectively. What do I do? I think that crisis of agency is a far more insidious crisis than the climate crisis. It's more widespread and it affects us all. And so the, uh, the Environmental Health Clinic provides one institutional context in which we can ask that question, but there's other institutional contexts. Um, ooze, the Bronx ooze, which is zoo backwards and without cages, is a whole set of interfaces for non-humans to uh, cohabit with us in our urban environment. I'll show you some of those. And pharmacy, which is a, uh, you can tell from the misspelling, is actually about designing food and food systems that increase, our, increase air quality, increase um, uh, build soil, improve water quality, uh, increase biodiversity. So let me start with the pharmacy project because we did a workshop here yesterday building these ag bags um, and about 30 people yesterday got their hands dirty and we had a great time building 
these ag bags, which are very simple Tyvek-based um, closed system agriculture to introduce people to the big ideas of the 21st century, one of which is closed system agriculture, that we can do agriculture, not just to reduce food miles or to reduce petrochemical fertilizers or to reduce pesticides or to reduce runoff, but design our agriculture and our food system so they actually increase water quality, build soil, increase biodiversity. So that's the charge of pharmacy. Um, and this is the ag bags. I call it cross-dressing buildings. This is on the front of the V&A, the Victoria and Albert Museum in, in London this summer, um, where uh, you can see we're inflorescing these barren urban environments. So the way this works, uh, these, the first thing that people who do any gardening or have any container plants say is, well, how do they drain? Um, closed system agriculture doesn't drain. Right? This is very, very water conserving because most of your water loss is through the topsoil. I'm using Tyvek because it's a single material material that has no binders, it doesn't leach anything into it. And it, it has these nanopores that breathe without, while being waterproof, right? So the oxygenated rhizomic layer of where all the root activity is right actually around the bag. So we can put these inexpensive um, ag bags over any railing, any parapet, any double-hung window to create arable territory out of thin air. Um, and I'll show you a, a few examples. The question, you know, why, well, one of the other big and important design challenges is to reintegrate vegetation back into the urban environment. And the big, the reason for that is, um, well, the World Health Organization claimed that in 2013, seven million people died prematurely from air quality. Um, the number one human health risk, more than malaria, AIDS, Ebola combined, air quality. Our uh, air quality, we've got the most toxic air quality we've ever been exposed to as a species, right? And it's been pushed down. The ultra-fine particulate matter that is below PM 2.5 is the stuff that is so small it enters into our pretty pink lungs and circulates, um, compromising the cardiovascular health of each one of us, giving our kids asthma. Um, and the funny thing is that there's one demonstrated technology to improve air quality. Does anybody know what that is? The leaves, leaf area index. Leaves are the demonstrated technology for improving air quality. And systematically, if this is the number one health risk, why aren't we urgently integrating leaves into our urban environment? I mean, beyond the sweet little decorative planting trees, evenly, clonally propagated trees um, in the Victorian tradition along the road. Realizing these leaves are incredibly important. Um, so the other question is, in an urban environment, if you're going to incentivize urban agriculture, what would you grow? And in New York City, I think here, around the world, there's a lot of interest in urban agriculture that's really, um, very sweet community building uh, activities. In Brooklyn, there's uh, something called Brooklyn Grange, which is actually in Long Island City, part of New York City, 
where they've got a couple of rooftops, rooftop farms. And what do they grow on these farms? Exactly the same things that the, the rural, struggling family farms around the rural food shed grow, right? But in the urban agriculture context, they have this preferential access to chefs who are talking about um, you know, the rooftop farm they got it from. And they have hundreds and hundreds of volunteer students and young hipsters who want to work on the farm. Whereas the, um, the uh, family farm seven miles up the Hudson in Rockland County have to pay their farm labor, right? And they don't, you know, they have to distribute. So the urban agriculture, in as much as it is, is actually actively undermining the rural food shed because of a lack of imagination and systems design. So what would you grow in an urban environment if you didn't want to compete with, if you wanted to actually support the rural food shed? You would grow something that's high nutrition value, high commercial value, maximize the leaf area index for the human health benefits of that, and was highly perishable and non-distributable, right? What is that? Flowers. Flowers are the most nutrient-dense foods we know of. And uh, uh, <clears throat> the problem that they pose um, is that people don't know how to eat flowers. <laughs> um, so let me show you a couple of... Um, this is actually... This one is a, um, a Photoshop, as you can probably tell. But this is the idea that we could, in aggregate, take small um, sections and assemble them to really address the compromised air quality of something like an airport, in this case JFK, the front door to New York City, any um, barren urban environment. Um, so I'm starting a, a um, crowdfunded initiative where we take JFK and offer flowers. Dear Mum, I'm putting some flowers here uh, to greet you. I put a special message on there that we can go and see when we get in with love, NYC. This idea that you can buy flowers to five feet of, of ag bag, put them on this um, barren context and aggregate that into a collective action, right? That addresses the air quality. Um, so who else likes flowers? Who likes flowers here? Yes, and also, oh, there they go, uh, pollinators. In a global pollinator crisis, um, actually increasing floral resources is supporting critical, prodigious pollinators um, that we have to foster. So if we actually designed an uh, urban agriculture system to maximize the human health benefits, we would, um, I would argue, we'd do it like this. It's also much more fun to farm while repelling than it is to do it on your hands and knees. Um, so, uh, speaking of pollinators. So let me t tell you a little bit about, um, I'm being <laughs> addressed by pollinators, um, about flowers as food. Um, and this is where, this has to be done in an urban context where the innovation food innovation happens, right? To expect the value adding to be done by farmers is ridiculous. Um, 
and they've got enough to do, right? So how do we reimagine flowers into our diets? And I'll show you a couple of experiments, but I've, for the last five years I've been running a molecular gastronomy supper club called the Cross Species Adventure Club, and we did a couple of these dinners in Melbourne. But this is um, more recent projects building um, these temporary manufactories, and a manufactory is mash-up between an assembly line and a party where you actually make your own food. In this case, an open-source cola um, that's been GNU-licensed uh, from three leaked recipes of Coca-Cola. It has neroli oil and lemon and lime and cloves and uh, lavender. Um, and it, uh, you move along the assembly line uh, with the pre-measured syringes of cola, bubble your New York City water, um, and put in it the other ingredients you might like it. Love Cola, for instance, uh, has New England aster flowers, which the Iroquois Indians used as a love potion. It's also a powerful antiviral. Um, the Happy Cola is a St. John's wort flower, uh, which gives you a big buzz. If you're not already taking it, it's better than a rum and coke. Anyway, there's a whole lot of mind-altering um, uh, floral essences that um, are very popular with um, uh, at openings. Uh, this is a, another example of a flower-based food called flower floss. In, this case, uh, in, the UK, in the UK they call it candy floss, right? Uh, and in... Um, fairy floss? Yes, here it's called fairy floss, which is a much more poetic name than cotton candy, that's what they call it. It relates more to the yeah. flowers. But I actually use floss to mean free, Libra, open source software is what it normally stands for. Uh, but in this case, free, Libra, open source systems, which is of course what the manufacturer is. So what it is, is actually not sugar, it's isomalt, which is a dietary fiber that's the major ingredient in Metamucil. Anybody with a sluggish gut would know um, what that's like. Uh, so it's sweet, diabetics often use it as a sugar alternative, but it's optically clearer and more stable than sugar, and it gives you no GI spike. It in, is in fact um, increases the fiber. So you um, uh, sprinkle that with high-protein high bee pollen and delicious edible flowers, and then stick an LED in the Biodiversity in your local neighborhood as you grow uh, and support pollinators. Uh, and um, this has been a really interesting project to do, these manufactories. They're a lot of fun. People like to make their own food, right? The radical transparency in food production makes a lot of sense. And, except it doesn't work. <laughs> the problem is, and I've learned this over and over again, no matter how nicely I've designed these assembly lines, low-skilled assembly line work is not a, at all unskilled. You get a lot of people at an opening at a museum trying to assemble uh, colas, and they can't even push the syringe down all the way, right, that's pre-measured. They can't put the label on straight. They spill things. It's just, 
drives me crazy. <laughs> so, um, so I've solved this problem by getting some Oompa Loompas. Um, and so I formed these musical theater companies called Child Labor. And so now I have children in uh, musical but efficient assembly lines assembling these good goods and singing about the ingredients, the open sourcing of food systems, and in fact the latest hit that we've been doing that starts off with ba ba banana, ba, you know, about making it here, making it anyway, but um, uh, is to do with um, uh, the cola cola, which is we've just started importing cola nut extract from West Africa. And so the kids actually call it um, a bowl of cola, <laughs> which is not good marketing, but um, uh, because of course it's the uh, emergence of zoonotic diseases from the forest edge. The cola nut is the only forest-based agricultural product in West Africa that is sufficiently high value that it protects the incomes of the forest edge dwellers. So that as we put the cola back in cola, um, and the 200 other phytochemicals that go with the caffeinated extract of um, cola nut, um, we are also protecting the forests that would otherwise be clear-cut for palm oil, right? So the kids are singing about these international trade relations and how food innovations being actually invited into figuring out food systems that improve environmental health, increase biodiversity, rather than just this idea that we can reduce the food miles or the kind of apologetic local food movement, which is lovely, right? Necessary, but radically insufficient. So um, another example of the, the cross-species adventure club foods, I'll give you one, is the wet kiss. Um, this is a marshmallow for kissing a frog, formerly known as Prince, which is a marshmallow, which uh, to rediscover the marsh in marshmallow, um, but it uh, uh, has cognac and lime juice and Turkish pepper and also J. levidum and bilocin. J. levidum is a, a ubiquitous soil bacteria that's associated with wetlands. Um, wetlands are the technology of the 21st century. Um, J. levidum produces a powerful antifungal called bilocin, which is um, actually a, uh, gives it a nice purple color. But um, the interesting thing about J. levidum is that when it's on the microbial skin community of frogs and salamanders, they seem to be protected from the deadly chytrid fungus, which is one of the big culprits in the biggest species extinction crisis, uh, crisis since the dinosaurs. Um, so the way the wet kiss works is as you bite into the marshmallow, your lips are inoculated with J. levidum and you're equipped to kiss a frog and protect it from the deadly chytrid fungus, right? So there are all sorts of other, uh, this is the paper that talks about bio-augmenting um, J. levidum to, but there's also lots of other delectable, delicious um, tastes of a biodiverse future. Murkish Delight is one of them. Lures I'll come back to, I hope. Um, but let me give you this example of the ag bags that I've been doing more recently. Uh, this is actually on a gallery, um, but um, imagine this is commercial science space, if you will. Imagine it's, I don't know, Dunkin' Donuts or something. Um, here is a sign that can promote the business or the organization underneath. 
But while doing so, it's also increasingly very index, right? And the human health benefits of that. It's also encouraging uh, urban floriculture, the reasons for which I've just explained, um, and supporting diverse pollinators. So this is a concrete example of what I think is probably the most, if there's one idea I would like you to go away with, is uh, something that, you know, <laughs> Um, as you mentioned, I've done a lot of academic work and in three PhDs I didn't learn this one very simple thing that I found astounding because one of the PhDs was in philosophy of biology, University of Melbourne here, great department in history and philosophy of science. But a few years ago I was doing some modelling um, and I came across this paper that said it might be a good idea to, to model mutualistic systems because Mutualists, that subset of symbiotic organisms that we call mutualists, constitute over 95% of the world's biomass. And I didn't know that. And I don't, I've asked many of my students and friends, I don't know how many people know, I mean, you probably heard a lot about predator-prey relationships, parasitism, competition for resources, selective pressure, but why don't we know that natural systems are mutualistic systems? A mutualist is an organism that actually lives longer, thrives, reproduces more in the presence of another organism, right, or other organisms. That's a mutualistic relationship. And that's what constitutes all the forests, all the pollinators, all the flowers, all the corals. The world is a mutualistic system. And so mutualistic systems design if we take that lesson, is really about benefit-benefit analysis. And this is a very concrete and simple example of what mutualistic systems design might look like. Right? This is a sign that not only promotes the interests of the uh, human organization, but the pollinators and <coughs> human health. Um, so this idea of how do we represent and understand um, mutualistic systems has been, you know, a representational crisis, I think, that we all face. And so recently I've developed something called um, the phenological clock, which is, I first did on the cross-species table, which is about, you know, this architecture of reciprocity where we can set a place at the table for non-humans and humans. So you can see it uh, here in The Hague. But this is the, the first instantiation of the phenological clock that I did. So these are all the organisms. This is around the Gem Museum in The Hague. All the organisms that are in the, that, that uh, park are listed here. And each species is an arc in this phenological clock. Um, so that's a January through December uh, clock face. Here it is in the Victoria and Albert Museum, the London version. You can see it better here. So that's January through December. The first set of circles are flowering perennials. When they bud, bloom, emerge, or migrate, right, is what's shown on that calendar. Um, the next set of circles are the insects that uh, depend on those flowering perennials. The next set of circles are the birds that depend on those insectivorous resources. And the next set of circles are the large biomass of trees. So this is about um, changing how we represent time, not as everywhere, nowhere, 
always the same, not as mechanistic, um, how, you know, the, uh, the idea that we have, sorry, um, but time that is a fingerprint of a local ecosystem, time that is seasonal, time that actually reflects the, you know, visceral experience of the changing seasonal interdependent organisms that constitute our, exper uh, our experience of time. Right, so, um, and, uh, I think it's time that we turn our attention to natural systems and represent them in such a way that we can um, you know, get beyond the field guide view of an organism, right, where you see an organism isolated from all the, organism it depend, all the organisms it depends on. And of course, we ourselves are in this web of mutualistic relationships. So I would argue that Melbourne, this park, uh, needs a phenological clock. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, this idea that we can change what we represent and how our social systems, our events um, depend on uh, local non-human organisms is, is critically important. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about ways that we can design, redesign our relationship to natural systems through um, the impertinent presence of non-humans who have moved into urban environments in ways that um, you would notice from the noisy cockatoos. All over the world there's a phenomena called urban migration which um, most of you would understand as the movement of the rural poor into urban cities, but ecosystem scientists call, uh, actually use it to describe the movement of animals formerly known as wild into um, urban centers. And it's a, actually an interesting re-evaluation re of where nature is. Nature is not in these little boxes we call parks, but in fact, in some of the healthiest bat population in, in Australia is in Sydney, right? Downtown um, Sydney. They've migrated from uh, the movement of, of non-humans into the urban environment testifies to, well, certainly the loss of resources elsewhere, but every green space in an urban environment is an invitation for non-humans to cohabit. But we haven't really designed um, for that. So um, let me show you a couple of ex uh, concrete examples uh, that cross-promote the presence of non-humans. These life cycles I've been um, doing for a while in New York City where we cross-dress bikes um, by putting these organisms. So every time Tim locks and unlocks his bike, he um, uh, someone asks him, what's that on your bike? And he has to explain, that's Daphnia, and um, it's in every freshwater ecosystem all over the world. You probably swallowed a few of them. They're incredibly, he becomes the ambassador of, of this. And what I do with the Environmental Health Clinic is I take small businesses like a children's music school or an experimental theater group, and instead of advertising in the case of Village Voice, it's $400 for three lines for three days of listing your performance. Um, I recruit four or five cyclists that are around the area who park on the area. And instead of paying $40,000 for three weeks of advertising on a bus stop on Broadway, they pay the Environmental Health Clinic $100 for three months of advertising. 
I spend about 20 of that on cross-dressing the bike and about 80 of it goes to the cyclist, right? So that we start to um, remarry the interests of diverse uh, businesses, small businesses, the economic diversity, in addition to actually make that visible on the streets um, with the um, non-humans, the biodiversity. And I've just come back from New York City where we launched the first version of these uh, bike messenger projects, which is a persistence of vision display on the bicycle wheels, which with some um, uh, software on your phone. So as you go through an intersection, this is geolocated information that displays on your, your wheels. So in this case, it's showing the fatalities the traffic fatalities, the cyclist fatalities, and the pedestrian fatalities at that intersection. Or as you're going along the bike path, it shows the um, little seahorses that live in the, um, in the river just beside on, on the Hudson River bikeway. So we've just, we did a, um, a community build where we built all these, um, these persistence of vision displays in Mexico City. And now we have a group of, um, really charged and interesting people who have a public platform and geolocated public information to, to really change what we put in the public imagination. And I think this is really important because as cities have taken on these city bike programs that uh, have taken the icon of independent anarchistic mobility, the bicycle, and turned it into a conduit of corporate advertising and visual sameness, um, there is a demand to use cyclists and bicycles as really the radical front of changing urban infrastructure um, and really making, of course, the cyclists more visible, but also having a larger agenda on how we can reimagine our urban infrastructure. Um, and there's many ways that we can do that through um, radically inexpensive technologies. Um, so I recently exhibited this pollution pencil project that takes very simple solar chimney, which is just a bit of plastic on a building that heats up, hot air rises, um, and then you put a filter on the top, in this case an electrostatic filter, which is very good for, it's actually the only thing for grabbing that ultra-fine particulate matter, that stuff that's ultra-unregulated, that is circulating in your um, blood systems now, carrying with it all sorts of toxins. Really, this is the... Um, but what I do is once the, the air goes through that filter, I grab that grime, the same stuff that's on your windowsill, um, that black carbon, the same stuff that reflects uh, in the atmosphere, changes the reflectance of the atmosphere or changes the color of snow. The big... Um, the low-hanging fruit of the greenhouse gases is particulate black carbon. Um, so I collect it in these electrostatic precipitators and then uh, re-release it. And I use Henry Thoreau's pencil recipe to bind that black carbon with a little bit of wax and a little bit of clay to make a pencil, the length of which uh, measures the amount of pollution that we've inexpensively pulled out of the air. So um, if anyone's a tweeter, if you can actually tweet the MTA, who are the Transportation Authority in New York, who I'm still, I'm 
for now a year been petitioning to let me put a electrostatic precipitator, a filter on the biggest pollution source in New York City, which is the Midtown Tunnel. Not dissimilar to this underpass, yes. <laughs> um, uh, and of course, that black carbon goes into, because of the prevailing winds, it goes into the lungs of kids in, in Queens, our youngest borough. Um, and of course, they won't let me put this. There's no filter at all on it. There's no filter on any of these major arterial roads. And there could their be. Reason? Sorry? What is their reason for not? There's no public pressure. Mm. It's, uh, I think it's actually really an interesting moment because it used to be the case that point sources were the biggest pollution sources, right? And so environmental regulation has worked marvelously to really focus on regulating point sources, which is the euphemistic term for big polluting factories, yes. right? But now the major pollution source is not those point sources. Mm. It's these non-point sources. It's you and I. Mm. It's our traffic. And it requires radically different political strategies to address that um, that thing, that condition. But in some ways, it, the solution that you're talking about would actually make people aware as to what is the new source and make them probably say, hey, we need to do something about it, which... Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the way I'm developing this project is actually at schools because um, children, of course, are specifically uh, vulnerable to the kind of pollutants that um, are bound to black carbon. Remember that these ultra-fine particulate matter um, is the biggest pollution source by number, by surface area, by health effects. It's the worst thing. It's utterly unregulated. Right? It's not regulated at all. It's below the regulated, PM 2.5 and above is regulated. But it's this ultra-fine matter that is unregulated. So it requires something else. And so by putting it, um, proposing it to schools um, and asking parents to help produce what is a fairly inexpensive system to create what I would argue is the $5,000 pencil, which is a small filter, um, we could really start to um, address this. So you can see um, this is some of the early prototypes I did with child labour that um, in enlisting um, schools to address this real, um, you know, what is, what is this stuff that we're dealing with, um, which is this really extraordinary challenge. So back to the Bronx ooze. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples of, um, yeah, technology for non-humans. This is a perch for um, your friendly neighborhood bird. Um, it works uh, by when they land on it. Um, do we have some sound here? Um, it'll trigger a sound file that will say something like this. And here's what you need to do. Go down there and buy some of those health food bars, the ones you call bird food, and bring it here and scatter it around. There's a good no. person. Um, 
You got it, you got it. Anyway, this is a device for birds to experiment on people, right? There's different, each of the perches has a different argument for the birds to figure out which argument best elicits cooper cooperative behavior from the people below. And so the bird's favorite above all others was this one. Really, it was about eight to one. They decided that this perch was the most effective. And the argument that was presented on this perch was this one. Tick, tick, tick. That's the sound of genetic mutations, of the avian flu becoming a deadly human flu. Do you know what slows it down? Healthy subpopulations of birds, increasing biodiversity generally. It is in your interests that I am healthy, happy, well-fed. Hence, you could share some of your nutritional resources instead of monopolizing them. That is, share your lunch. <coughs> A little bit of biology 101. <coughs> Excuse me, from the pigeons. Um, but this idea that we have designed our food systems to make them into cauldrons of pathogenicity, where we put many many organisms very genetically similar in stress conditions without UV sterilization, sunlight. Um, you know, in a, in a wild context, if a, if a virus is too pathogenic, it'll kill the organism too quickly and it won't pass on, right? But in the industrialized food production context that we've produced, we've managed to create cauldrons of pathogenicity that have so far resulted in avian flu, swine flu, can we go on, right? This, the demand to redesign our food systems is urgent, right, and important. Um, this is the public toilet for pigeons, which I can go into. Um, uh, but this is actually probably the the um, uh, crux of of an example of a project that I'm currently calling the Great Participatory Pollinator Project. So Moth Cinema takes the urban lighting um, issue. It's a silver screen that hangs in a park um, or the facade of a building and um, illuminates it according to a, a screening schedule. That um, screening schedule now actually, um, uh, well, that light attracts moths, of course, like any urban lighting. Um, but instead of being fried and bedazzled, the moths actually find a, a moth garden filled with nectar plants and host plants. And so they bounce around, playing out their nightly dramas, having a fun old time, their adventures, their love triangles, casting these dramatic shadows on the screen behind them and creating uh, a display of a healthy urban ecosystem. This was the very first lunar moth seen in New York City in 40 years at the um, moth cinema. Um, so I actually recently did this in the Victorian Albert Museum in London um, this summer, their summer. Um, uh, so here it is with, uh, now, now I'm going to play the music. So as you came up, I was playing this, um, this is one of the nocturnes that I'm, so I've been commissioning nocturnes for the moth cinema, if you will, the, the film score for the silent film of the moth shadows. Um, and this is a, a nocturne by Matthew Bertner, who's a um, wonderful sound artist at UVA. 
Um, and you'll notice nocturnes are, of course, melodically driven meditations of the night. With a very slow moving, absent of any clicking, right? Because um, this was actually a cross-species stereo performance where we were playing the music for humans. And so it really, the Moth Cinema becomes a venue for new composition. But we simultaneously transpose it in real time into the ultrasonic spectrum, right, to create um, to create a concert for the moths. Because the moths have very good hearing, unlike butterflies who are deaf, they co-evolved with bats, and so they can um, hear. Perhaps they have the best um, hearing of any organism. So by playing the nocturne for the moths, in addition to humans, we're achieving another thing. We're flooding, or jamming if you will, the moth detection capacity of bats, right? So that um, we're alleviating the predatory pressure. So this is a formula that's actually worked in marine reserves very well, where you take an R strategy organism, right? And you have these no-take reserves. And within one season, you have 400% increase in populations and replenishment and repopulation of the spillover surrounding areas. This is how we can take a cultural venue like the Moth Cinema, a venue for new composition, to alleviate the predatory pressure, create a rich habitat of um, resources to provide habitat and opportunity for these prodigious pollinators, uh, the moths, instead of, in fact, um, uh, these are facing moth portraits, um, instead of sacrificing thousands of moths every night, um, this is the little ultrasonic speakers that are in the moth cinema. Uh, and this is, this was actually really fun. Um, this is actually our countryman, our famous countryman, Julian Assange. I had my um, artist talk with Julian Assange at the V&A. Um, and he was just down the road in the Ecuadorian um, embassy. But I actually decided to take his voice through the panda bear. This is Ai Weiwei's panda bear stuffed with secret documents. <laughs> and so um, he's kind of humorless, Julian, I have to say. Um, but nonetheless, <laughs> he had no control over <laughs> being um, coming out the front end of a panda bear. Um, but it was a great, it was actually a really great conversation because this was right around the time that he was revealing the, or publishing the investment chapter of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, which I think is a really important document that Australia has just signed, thank you, Australia, that marks the end of the era of the golden era of environmental regulation. Because Trojan horsed inside the TPP was something that was perfected with the NAFTA trade agreement, right? These secret courts to protect corporate profit, which means that any environmental regulation is unenforceable because it can be taken to court. And so what signing the TPP means is that environmental regulation is over. That era of environmental regulation, the, air the, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, they're over. The good news about that is that <laughs> um, regulation, international negotiation, 
is neither the only, nor I would argue the best way to redesign our relationship to natural systems. But it does put agency on and an urgency on those of us who are working to reimagine and redesign our relationship to natural systems through alternative strategies that aren't based in regulatory uh, mechanisms. Um, so these um, small concrete examples are things that can be implemented without um, regulatory incentives um, or punitive uh, fines. These butterfly bridges is one example where if we understand how urban biodiversity works, it's patches of healthy ecology, right? Patch ecology is the, the term that we use in ecosystem science. And connecting those patches is critically important for making healthy populations, for encouraging genetic flow, um, for increasing the resilience of any of these isolated little islands of, um, so these butterfly bridges um, with banner permit can be put up in any neighborhood. I like these burly guys skipping along with their um, uh, butterfly attracting plants. So instead of butterflies being smeared on your windscreen, they bounce along from one um, patch of healthy ecology to another. We were originally getting 20 butterflies an hour. Within a week, we started getting well, this overpass to provide safe passage for butterflies, which of course makes the fleeting presence of these, these critical pollinators much more durable um, and increases the safety of the cross-species crossing so that um, we were eventually, well, we could radically inexpensively create an infrastructure for pollinator movement. Um, so we were getting 30 butterflies per hour crossing these bridges, which were um, was interesting. Similarly, I know we don't have salamanders here, but I'm fascinated with salamanders precisely because I am, um, you know, they seem like, uh, Santa's elves to me, right? Impossible in this climate, but um, they're the base of the food network in the in in um, the verdant northeast. So the Salamander Superhighway is similarly about connecting habitat um, across these obstacles. So it's a micro speed bump that uh, reminds us we're not alone. But inside, there's a PIR sensor, so that when a salamander goes through, it'll tweet, you know, "Hi, honey, I'm coming home." <laughs> or um, from the Socratic salamander, this was in Socrates Sculpture Park, what comes first, the salamander or the migration route? Right. Uh, important philosophical questions that need to be addressed. Um, okay, this is um, another project that was in Socrates Sculpture Park in an exhibition called Civic Action. Um, and this is, there's another big idea, I think one of the most important ideas of the 21st century, um, that, um, that we need to radically reimagine our waste distribution systems and why we distribute waste. This is biochar, um, and most people in the US don't know what biochar is. I don't know how many people here do, but I think in Australia with our degraded soil, we're much more aware um, and because Terra Preta Australis was developed here in the last 20,000 years, it's archaeological technology, where we take cellulosic waste and we burn it in this very efficient process called pyrolysis, 
and we produce biochar, right? At the same time, you can produce a syngas. You don't produce particulate pollution. You do produce energy, a clean energy, methane-like gas that is a high-density energy source. So you produce um, clean energy and the byproduct is biochar that you then can work into the soil and particularly in urban soils, um, you get about, well, we got about a 40% increase in growth, increased biodiversity, and it immobilizes the heavy metals and releases, you know, it creates luxury housing for soil microbes so that they are, in fact, able to release many more nutrients. So this is actually, uh, I invited people from Long Island City to bring their waste, their old dissertations and papers and magazines and incinerate them in the um, biochar barbecue. I had to introduce them to this idea of <laughs> barbecues. I also put on a salsa DJ, so I had a biochar-cha. <laughs> so um, this is about creating a convivial material, small-scale experiment where people can see that, um, you know, can see for themselves how biochar works. Um, they can take some biochar home and put it in one side of their front yard and not the other, put it in one pot and not the other pot, um, and experiment with it. So these, uh, these experiments have now led to, I'm doing these, uh, the kitchen is closed, it's an outdoor community kitchen that has anaerobic digest from food waste going in one side, paper waste, cellulosic waste going in the other side, we have a high-end gourmet kitchen that we're building in Burlington, Vermont, and demonstrating, again, these waste-to-energy systems. It's convivial social context in which we can materially explore the powerful ideas of the 21st century, right? Distributed local power production, power production that actually increases human health, creates clean energy, builds soil, sequesters carbon for about, you know, 5,000, 40,000, maybe a million years, right, at the current estimates of how that's the kind of scale we need to be sequestering carbon for, not, you know, planting a tree for a hundred years or so, right? This is, um, so understanding materially what these real alternatives are and experimenting with them and experiencing them means that the Long Island City residents can have a discussion about how much energy can they generate from their paper waste, just their so-called recycled paper. Instead of having those trucks coming through, those diesel trucks coming through, to are handled by five different subcontractors to so-called recycle their paper, it makes no sense to distribute waste, right? Particularly when you can generate clean energy, improve and build soil, and reduce the amount of pollution that's being made. We, um, just with the paper waste in Long Island City, which is a small chunk, probably about the size of the city of Melbourne, we could generate enough energy for all the lighting, all the domestic lighting, all the public lighting, all the commercial lighting in that area, right? So that kind of understanding, building that kind of understanding is critically important. This is not, a, um, not something for engineers to calculate, it's for us to experience and explore what is possible, what is desirable. It's interesting, Natalie, just thinking about from a, um, within the project that I'm working on from a policy perspective, when you look at 
the way cities have developed or the urban environment has developed, it has really, in a perverse way, disempowered people to understand that they are part of the natural system because all of the waste, everything is just taken away that we exactly. don't need to deal with anything. So people, are, I think the reimagining is a, a great concept for people to really understand that we are part of it and we can be empowered to, yeah, imagine and um, get excited by the fact that we can have fun doing it as well. Right, to redesign mm. these systems, to invite many people into rethinking. Mm. But this is not something that waste contractors, waste management people mm. are. This is our health, mm. right? This is our, ch why do we distribute food in such a way that it gives our children asthma, right? Mm. Whose job is it to mm. redesign that? Who has agency? Mm. And my work in the environmental health clinic is very much inviting each one of us into the space race of the 21st century, which is redesigning these systems, claiming them as cultural systems. So also sports, which I think is the, the great Australian cultural, well, our greatest <laughs> culture is sports. Um, so redesigning sports because sports, of course, determine, choreograph many of our green spaces. And reinventing sports similarly, I think, is really important to take these kind of conventional uh, inherited sports practices and say, well, can't we design sports that actually not only improve human health, but improve environmental health as well? So. My favourite, I've been doing a very special Olympics, um, my favourite new sport that I've designed in order to explore what these new sports could be is this one. Does anybody know who the, the strongest organism in the world is? Yes, most people think it's ants. Uh, it is an insect. Um, but it's not an ant. The ants are about 17, lift about 17 times their weight. They have a very good PR firm, um, I think. Uh, but in fact, the strongest animal in the world is a, a rhinoceros beetle, stag beetle. They appear in every biome and uh, they're very hard to interact with. So I developed a rhinoceros beetle wrestling sport um, where you, it's a head mounted display that scales human forces to beetle scale and beetle forces to human scale to create a level playing field. And then you climb in there um, and you wrestle a rhinoceros beetle. I take bets on man versus beast and uh, that's actually how I fund these projects. <laughs> um, but uh, it's quite a violent sport. You can see optically, it's about the same. But you, can you imagine if, the, if we did have high school sports that involved rhinoceros beetles, there would be a lot of rhinoceros beetles, right? And these rhinoceros beetles are so in, absolutely biomechanically impossible because they lift up logs, they aerate the soil, right? They return the biodiversity and we could take this toxic turf that we call sports fields and return it to the kind of diversity um, that in, in fact improves. So this idea of um, designing exercises and training programs that improve health, um, I have a number of them, so you come to the Environmental Health Clinic and I will design a um, training program for you or your small groups 
that will have different stations around your local neighborhood. A favorite one, people like to build up uh, their six-pack, right? core body conditioning. It's very important. Um, so for example, the core body conditioning exercise is hula hooping, very good for core strength. But my hula hoops are filled with um, New England wildflower seeds. So as you're hula hooping, you're spreading perennial resources for lots of um, important pollinators. And even the boys do it. I didn't know that boys could hula hoop. Can you hula hoop? <laughs> you can, okay. Um, so um, this is the most popular of sports. But this idea that we can, in fact, design sports to um, and must um, is uh, to improve human and environmental health is interesting. Um, so this is the tree office, which is the project that I um, may be doing, <laughs> fingers crossed. Um, it was originally commissioned to open yesterday, but we've had some hiccups. Um, the tree office is an office in a tree, a co-working space in a tree that has high-speed internet and locally generated power, um, a biochar pyrolysis oven. Um, so uh, the conceit of this project, this is the, the one in New York. Um, this is the, actually I should just show you this. The, um, this is not a tree house. It's not an enclosure. It's not about making, privatizing public space. It's actually about creating more public space, like this pavilion, right? It's, it's actually um, open. It's defined not by the enclosure, but um, it defines space and has the transparency that we, that we recognize in natural systems. What's important about this tree, this is the one in Berlin. Um, this, is the, this is the original, the conceit of this project that is owned and operated by the tree. The tree is in fact the landlord, right? So uh, this is the original tree that owned, owns itself. This was um, willed to itself in 18... 32 by Colonel William Jackson, who loved the tree, and so he decided that he would will the tree to itself in the eight foot by eight foot plot of land around it. Um, unfortunately, that tree died, and so the Junior Ladies Gardening Club came along in 1946 and replanted a skion of that tree, the acorn of that tree, back in the eight foot by eight foot plot of land. And so the tree that owns itself tested heritability laws, right, continues to um, own itself. And it becomes a really interesting and important legal precedence that is part of um, the rights of nature movement. And the Maori and several indigenous communities in, in uh, the United States and many indigenous communities around the world are actually organizing around this rights of nature discourse, right, which is an alternative to environmental services that you might be familiar with, this idea that a New York City street tree is valued for the services that it provides, right? The carbon sequestering, the stormwater retention, the energy savings from shade. Um, in New York City, 80 years of service, a tree is valued at, can you guess? $400. In London, the replacement cost of a, of a street tree is 480 pounds, just under 500 pounds. 
that's not consistent with my sense of value of a tree and I don't think it. So the environmental services model is a paradigm that's highly problematic, right? And the rights of nature, in the case of these, um, this is the current tree office in um, Shoreditch in the middle of, um, uh, in Hoxton Square in London, in the kind of Silicon Roundabout area. Um, this is the uh, Rupert, the tree is the landlord of this tree. Um, and um, it is a platform for, you know, if the tree is, you're paying your, your hot desking fees, your co-working fees, your rent to the tree, the tree's, um, you know, texting you back saying, I'm not going anywhere till you pay up. <laughs> it's um, uh, through social media, actually quite a vocal um, presence. But it also, what does a tree spend its, its profits on? The New York City tree was generating, um, it had 40 people paying $25 a month for the membership in the tree office. $1,000 a month it was generating, right? That's a lot more than $400 for 80 years of service. And so changing the, this idea, extending rights discourse to non-humans, is a powerful idea that certainly the Bolivian Rights of Earth document is instantiating and many indigenous communities says makes sense and of course it does, right? Currently if a mining company trashes a river we have to find some farmer whose livelihood is impacted so they can sue on behalf of the river to remediate. You know, this legal gymnastics, if the river could just sue on its own behalf, mm. That's a very different structure. So extending rights discourse to non-humans may sound absurd, but in this case, the tree office gives us a capacity to really experiment with what's it like to have a tree as a landlord. Oh, yes, okay. I have to shut up in 10 minutes for the sunset performance, and I've only got, I'm only halfway through the... Through the um, uh, this is the roof. I'm just going to tell you the roof. Um, uh, this is an ECTFE roof. Um, you know, as a kind of concrete experiment where you're using your own work styles to think about why do I, you know, why can't I work in a tree? What is it like to have a tree as a landlord? Um, what is locally generated? pyrolytic power look like? How do we use the paper waste and the poldering to generate power? Um, and how do we explore new systems, right? So this is the roof that I designed that's actually ECTFE and it goes through the full hydrological cycle. We put gray water in there that evaporates and condenses on the roof and then runs down the, the, um, the side at the 21 degree um, uh, curve and collects distilled purified water to create a water purification system um, and a very high uh, strength, lightweight, high performance roof structure. It's also a lot of fun to be breathing underwater and um, working underwater. Uh, this is the design for the 
Melbourne Tree Office that we have a couple of sites in contention now um, to... Uh, there's actually a lot of interesting projects. So I'm going to finish with a couple of projects. Um, to do with re-changing our relationship to the water front. We can probably cut the the Moth Cinema Nocturne. Yeah? Do we cut the music? Because there's some more music coming from the Muscle Choir, um, which is a... Uh, the, you know, the ants who had the P, that, that have that PR, they have the same PR firm as I think oysters have because mussels are in fact the heavy lifters of water quality improvement. You've probably heard more about oysters, but mussels in fact form these pliant mega structures that absorb wave energy and purify water. Um, and the mussel choir is a project that inhabits um, the only part of reconstructed shoreline in New York City where I've instrumented the mussels with a, a sensor that measures how it opens and closes. And how a mussel opens and closes, of course, is tells us a lot about water quality. They'll clam up and say nothing if they're... Um, uh. So I transpose the um, opening and closing, the gape angle, into um, music. And the mussel choir performs um, and... Exp uh, this is the touring rock band of the mussel choir. Um, I think I don't have time to play you the hit single of the Muscle Choir, um, but maybe later. This is the version we put in the, um, in the uh, Venice Lagoon for the Venice Biennial. Um, this is the project down in Tasmania that I'm just going down to tomorrow morning um, at GASP, the Glen Orkey uh, Art and Sculpture Park where we're putting buoys in that actually um, light up when fish swim underneath. Um, it's actually a low resolution display of fish presence. So I put it in in the, uh, the East River and the Bronx River. There's lights on the top. fish will text you back um, and um, you can also feed the fish um, and the lures that I've developed are nutritionally appropriate so they augment the nutritional resources but um, they also have a um, chelating agent in them a medical grade chelating agent so as the fish ingest the lure this is cast into a commercial fishing lure, but the hook is, there is no hook, right? It's actually delicious. Um, the fish ingested, it binds to the bioaccumulated heavy metals and PCBs and complexes into a less reactive form. They poop it out and is, uh, is effectively, it settles into the silt, it's removed from bioavailability. 
the major source of mercury in your bodies is from fish, right? And your friendly neighborhood dentist. But by treating fish health, we're treating our own health, right? And this is an aggregating these small actions into collective action again, as opposed to dredging the Hudson, which is uh, currently what's going on. We can respond. Um, I've got four minutes until the the projects to, um, so I'll go, I'll skip over some food, some more delicious and delightful food. I'll skip over the peer-to-peer -peer project, which is... And you have to leave time so that I can ask you a question. Well, but we, I think we're going to have a, is a that quick be a performance, okay. and then we'll have a discussion. That's, is that right, Jesse? Yes. Um, yes. Okay, so... Um, of flying hundreds of people across Nathan Phillips Square. Grandmothers were the most enthusiastic flyers um, of all of these, and that this, like many of the other projects, was a, a shared public memory of a possible future, a concrete experiment of what is possible, what is desirable, what can we do, how can we respond to the, to the um, challenges that we face. I'm going to, I think, I'll come back to this. Um, yeah, leave this as my last slide and, you know, um, interesting, um, an important kind of slogan to invite each one of you into the space race of the 21st century, which is, which really is to redesign our relationship to natural systems, the technical, the cultural, the socio-ecological systems that we share, the environmental commons. If we don't do it, if we aren't reimagining and redesigning, who is, right? And so after the little performance, I hope to have a discussion with Marie about what resilience means, as, you know, in inhabiting the one initiative that really is explicitly is about redesigning our relationship to natural systems in the city of Melbourne um, and invite you all to discuss with us what is possible, what we can do. Um, and now I'll hand it over to you, Jesse, to three minutes to... Okay, I don't know what's going to happen at 7.41, but <laughs> it's very exciting. <laughs> got two minutes to make an initial <laughs> response or do we have one initial question? Mm. 
mean, I'm interested to hear what you would prescribe for Melbourne, given some of the challenges. So the challenges that, you know, Melbourne are facing, we're fast approaching a more outgrow Sydney, unprecedented growth rates. Um, we're so renowned and, you know, the statistics around um, heat and heat events in Melbourne are huge, you know, so currently nine degrees over 35 every year. By 2050, I think, we're looking at 26 days over 35 degrees Celsius. Okay, this is our contemplation.